This is the Darcy Jerome Podcast, episode 22. Today my guest is Andrew Lawton, host of The Andrew Lawton Show. We're going to be talking about his best-selling book, The Freedom Convoy. Andrew Lawton, welcome to the Darcy Drill Podcast. How are things? Hey, it's good to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah. No, this is a real pleasure. I enjoy your show quite a bit. And uh, the reason I wanted to have you on was to talk about your book, which I enjoyed quite a bit, The Freedom Convoy. Um, I can't imagine any of the listeners would be unfamiliar with uh, The Freedom Convoy. Uh, but why don't you give us a little taste of the book by telling us about uh, your experience in Ottawa during the protest? Sure. I, and I actually would go back a, a couple of weeks because when this convoy was gaining steam, I, I was watching this unfold and seeing this group of people assemble from across the country and start planning something. And, and by the time they started out on that week-long journey to Ottawa, it was clear this was something big. This was going to be large. We saw people on the overpasses. We saw people along the shoulders of the road. We just saw this thing was gaining steam. And, and this giant protest, that we really haven't seen in Canada throughout the course of the pandemic or largely throughout history, what was really, it affected a lot of people. So I went to Ottawa to cover it as a journalist and stayed there a few days. I kept up with it and ended up going back at what we now know was near the end of the protest. And I saw that there was a lot that just was the media was getting wrong. There was a lot happening behind the scenes that people just couldn't see at the surface level. And I really wanted to, as a journalist, take a deep dive into this. And that ended up becoming this book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it seems like the book is selling like crazy. Um, I've read it. Like I told you, I actually bought a couple cop extra copies to give to my neighbors who are truckers and uh, fans of yours, actually. Um, so it's very it's very well written and easy to read. I recommend the listeners buy a copy. Um, but I think even beyond your skill as a writer. And the success of the book also speaks to something that you talk about quite a bit in the book, uh, which is that type of groundswell of support for the protesters that still exists now, eight months later. Um, is that a fair statement? I, I think so. And I mean, obviously, it's not to whitewash the fact there are people that are not fans of the convoy and, and don't like what they were standing up for or do like what they were standing up for but didn't like the tactics. But we also saw that this was a movement that really did seem to permeate different groups and, and a lot of people that were not conventionally involved in politics that certainly wouldn't identify as a card-carrying member of the Conservative Party or any other party really did resonate with this protest in some way. And there was a, I felt anyway, a, a hidden, I don't, not a majority necessarily. I mean, we know that Justin Trudeau called them the fringe minority, but there, there was a, a hidden group out there that aligned with this that you wouldn't really expect. And, and their stories, I don't think were told by and large in the media coverage. Yeah, absolutely. I think there are a lot of people who, yeah, weren't going to make the trip to Ottawa, but were still supporting the convoy. A lot of that is evident in the fundraising that happened. Um, 
but the mainstream media, yeah, they they did everything they could to put a negative spin on this thing. And well, in my mind, um, you know, it it really wasn't sticking. Um, what like what are your thoughts on how independent journalists like yourself made the difference in how this story was told? I mean, I think this was really, as far as Canada is concerned anyway, when independent media really really, really had the ability to shine. And and I say that because there was just so much distrust that people had with how the media handled this. And, and it goes back to the very beginning because the mainstream media originally ignored it. They just didn't pay attention to this thing at all. And then when they did, they started trying to minimize it and say, oh, it's just a few trucks. It's just a few rednecks from Alberta. It's nothing. And then when that didn't stick, when people were seeing, oh, this is actually pretty huge, they started to really ramp up the rhetoric. And that was when we started to see some really crazy predictions of violence, which never materialized. Theorization that Russian actors were behind this, which we never saw materialize. And and that was, I think, at a really key point where people realized maybe there's something that we're not getting here. And, and covering it on the ground in Ottawa, I, I said this in the book, so you know, this may not be original to you anymore, but I, I think it bears repeating. The most compelling coverage that I did in terms of what people told me they liked was just walking around with my camera and just streaming live video of what I was seeing and and not really even offering commentary necessarily because people were just so distrustful of the little snippets they were getting on the media. They just wanted an unfiltered view of what was happening on the ground in Ottawa. And that, to me, was frankly quite revealing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think uh, probably some people just wanted uh, the feeling of being there also, like people who weren't able to make it. And even just some live footage from you uh, gave them some of that. Um, yeah, well, that no, that was, to, to interrupt there, that was a key part of it as well. People that just felt like, you know, I couldn't be there for myself, so I uh, I would go. But there was another demographic as well that really said, you know, I, I, I just, I don't even know if I like it, but I, I don't think that what CBC is telling me is happening there is, is what's happening. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, well, I'd like to get into more about the media stuff after, but um, I guess I just want to... You know, my levels of cynicism, which were very high to begin with in regard to Canadian politics, you know, uh, they've ballooned immeasurably throughout the past couple of years. But if we were to look at the, the convoy and, you know, like the silver lining of outside of everything that happened, you know, um, what would that, I mean, what is that? What, what, like in your experience, what is the, the positive takeaways? from from the convoy and even how it was was uh dealt with at the you know through the invocation of the uh, emergencies act and everything i you know i haven't really shared this before but but i struggled in how to finish the book for for two reasons the, the first was that the story wasn't really over i mean at the time that i wrote it pat king was still in jail tamara leach was out of jail and and now tamara leach has been brought back to jail and pat king was released and and obviously there were legal challenges afoot that affected uh, what was going to happen here but but more fundamentally the question i really grappled with is that one of 
was this a success? Did this win? Because uh, remember that the vaccine mandate for cross-border truckers is still at this very point on the books. Cross-border truckers are unable to do their work unless they're fully vaccinated. We know that the air travel vaccine mandate continued. The public service vaccine mandate continued for, for months and months after the convoy. And, and, and I think that in, in a lot of ways, you could say the convoy failed at what it, its primary objective was. But when I took a step back, and this part is in the book, I, I talked about how, you know, they, they really did something exceptional in how they, I think, revealed the lengths through which, you know, opponents of liberty will go to stop those who, who seek liberty. And I think the Emergencies Act being invoked was something that really showed a lot and it revealed a lot. And I, I think it was the convoy that brought that out of government and, and forced government to show its true colors. I, I think that some of the provincial mandates we saw, which were really in limbo indefinitely, but got uh, withdrawn or rescinded very quickly after the convoy got to Ottawa and Ontario and Quebec and in Saskatchewan and Alberta. I think that's something that we could say the convoy played a, a role in as well. So there were smaller victories, but I, I think the greatest victory for me was really that bigger picture idea here of, you know, forcing the government to reveal what it's all about and, and what it's prepared to do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so Justin Trudeau invokes the Emergencies Act uh, in February. You know, he does this, like you talk about in your book, uh, without anyone from his caucus meeting with the protesters or organizers. Now, I'm, I'm not confident that um, something similar wouldn't have happened under a conservative government. Um, I mean, the opposition was fairly non-existent throughout lockdowns and mandates. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think, I mean, to be honest, I, I think you're pointing out something I should have mentioned in the last answer there, which is that the real, I think, exceptional victory of the convoy, which I, I think you can draw a direct line to, is uh, Aaron O'Toole's ousting as conservative leader. And I mean, obviously, they were after the mandates and they were after Justin Trudeau. So getting rid of the opposition leader doesn't necessarily seem like a win. But I think it is in the context that in the last federal election, Justin Trudeau was trying to win votes off the backs of campaigning against the unvaccinated. He was uh, speaking about them with all sorts of, uh, you know, nasty, nasty bits of rhetoric. And the conservatives were nowhere on this. They weren't standing up against vaccine mandates. They weren't really standing up against lockdowns. So the convoy actually forced a, a culture shock within the conservatives where they had members that really started to revolt against their own leader and say, yeah, we, we actually do want to speak up for these people. We do want to speak up for individual choice. And, and it was why Candace Bergen, who was the, the deputy leader who then became the interim leader, was very vocal when Aaron O'Toole wasn't about speaking up against uh, you know, Trudeau on, on the mandate. So I think that was definitely a, a convoy victory for sure. Yeah, yeah, okay, good point. Um, so I think the last time I saw you, we were in, uh, you were in Calgary, you were speaking at, uh, shoot, now I forget the name of it. Was it Freedom Talk? It was Freedom Talk, yeah, 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 that's what yes. it was. And so you, you did a, a great talk on some of the problems, uh, you know, regarding the mainstream media, you talked a lot about how it's uh, institutionally the, the problems that they have. Um, could you kind of give us an overview of, of that? And, and I guess kind of try, 
tie it back to the your book and the and the convoy again because again I think like we talked about earlier the media coverage was so biased and out to lunch it seems to me like uh, mainstream media lost a lot of credibility throughout that whole thing. Yeah, I think there are two things there, and and I actually recall I think the exact remarks that you're referring to there, and and I, you know I I think when people talk about media bias, they tend to be oversimplistic about it. The the problem is not that every reporter is a card carrying member of the Liberal Party and hates conservatives and you know hates Christians and and all this stuff. The the problem, I mean, certainly some of those people succeed in journalism, and I I think if you were to find a part, not not necessarily a politically partisan, but a really ideological, close-minded left winger. I think they're going to have an easier time getting a, a job in a newspaper or a TV station than their analog on the political right. I, I think, you know, but that but that's a societal problem, and, and that society is is tending to view the left as being the baseline, and the left as being neutral. And I think that's a big problem with institutions in general, and and media is not immune from that. Or immune to that, rather. But I, I think the other aspect of it is that newsrooms are subject to a lot of inherent bias in where the people going into media are coming from. A lot of them are graduates from liberal arts programs and big urban centers like Toronto and, and Ottawa. And then they get plucked into a Saskatchewan bureau for some newspaper and they don't actually understand the West necessarily. And and there are some reporters that do a tremendous job at, at really trying to understand new perspectives and learn about the people they're writing about. And there are others that don't. And I think that's the challenge. In The Convoy, you had some reporters that were really doing a good job going out, talking to people and trying to get a sense of who they are. And then you had others that wanted to just sit in their offices and look down on the street from above and not really engage and, and even try to understand what this protest was all about. And I, I think that was really, really key here. And, and I, I suspect there was a lot of classism behind it. Uh, we saw this in government and in media that, you know, we don't want to really give any credibility to this group of, you know, red collar rednecks or blue collar rednecks that are coming in and talking about these things and think they're better than us and think they're more virtuous than us. And I, and I really do think classism was at its core there. And that's one thing that I don't think media or political elites have done a particularly good job of is representing all the classes that exist in this country. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I had a the the first time I reached out to you to have a conversation is I because I wanted to get into more of the the media kind of stuff with you. Um, I did an episode with Derek Fildebrandt on uh, you know the media bailout packages and and that sort of thing. So obviously, there's you know. The wrong incentives in place once once we start uh, subsidizing these these legacy media things. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and I, I think I mean media bias is a, a big problem in and of itself. But the second you start putting government money into the mix, people have to start asking these questions because right now, 
you have news outlets whose staffing is dependent in in large part, or in some cases, I'd say really large part, on government subsidies and, and government funding. And you have news co- news companies that have really made subsidies the, the cornerstone of, of their business plan instead of trying to find ways to do what independent media have been doing, which is, you know, reinventing the wheel and, and getting creative and, and finding ways that in a, a changing climate, you can do all these different things to, to make money and to retain subscribers and all of that. And I, I mean, CBC is, of course, the example of an outlet that's entirely dependent on government money. And again, you have individual reporters that have spoken out that have said, you know, I think this is wrong. I, I don't like this. But the problem is then how are you as a consumer of media supposed to look at this outlet and say, well, how can I trust this when they're getting uh, this little piece of $600 million of government money, however large or small the piece is for that outlet? And I I think it's moving to a point where the government is always going to be in a position where even if they're not pulling the strings, there is an implicit lobbying that's taking place by report or by outlets that know that they need to get that government money to keep surviving. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, the, so as far as, uh, stuff you're working on, you have your show, the Andrew Lawton show, which is great. And you, you're still doing a lot to cover, uh, some of the fallout from the convoy. I mean, I, I don't know if it was released today, but I saw some of it just today. You have, uh, some, some, uh, the lawyers from the, uh, justice center on and talking about, uh, the mandates that are still in place and the work that they're doing. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so that particular one is a lawsuit against ArriveCan, which is the uh, federal government's app that they use for uh, basically managing and controlling entry into this country. And the thing that I find so fascinating about this discussion is that, is that the government has very clearly uh, very clearly been deceptive about this. They originally said this was all about COVID and then they changed their mind and said, well, you know, maybe we want to keep this around. And, uh, you know, at the very least, you're, you're forcing Canadians to disclose information that is not uh, the government's and shouldn't belong to the government and making it a condition of entry to the country. And in some cases, forcing people to disclose it to airlines as well, because, you know, they won't let you on your flight back to Canada unless you can prove that you've done a can, which has a little sticker on it if you've been vaccinated or not. And, and this is now something that we've decided is core to your identity in this country. So uh, that particular episode is about a lawsuit against a can. There are also lawsuits against the vaccine mandate for air travel, which uh, the government has since revoked. But I think they're still trying to argue that we, we need a ruling on this so that if government brings it back, we can say, well, no, it's it's unconstitutional. Uh, and then you have other challenges as well about all of these things. And, and basically two and a half years of governments infringing on people's rights. And, and there's never to this point been any accountability on that. Yeah, it's uh, it. It amazes me how uh, apathetic most Canadians have been towards towards some of this stuff, and it is great to see, you know, people out there fighting the good fight. Um, I want to give you an opportunity to talk ab- about your show and True North and your Substack, and I don't like, and I'd like to hear any like because <laughs> I know you have a lot of projects on the go at any given time. I'd like to I'd like to hear uh, what it is you're working on. 
Yeah, I think you caught caught everything for the most part. So I, I do my show and I, I do a lot of writing as a journalist for True North. That's at tnc.news. And, uh, you know, I will say my show at True North, which is all online, is, is really a continuation of a, a show I used to do for a traditional media company, which was my background in, in talk radio. And, uh, you know, that ended in 2018 and I, I revived it with True North and I, I haven't looked back. And the Substack was, again, something of, of really me trying to reclaim this thing that I used to do for other people and for mainstream media outlets. I did a, a weekly national column with Global News. I've written in the National Post and the Washington Post. But I said, you know, I, I actually want to start writing for me and, you know, not have to go through all the editors and stuff like that and cultivate my own audience and my own list. So I, I launched the Substack uh, last year and I, I've been very grateful to, to have people that have joined that and have said, you know, I want to give a little bit of money to, to keep it going. So I, I thank people for that. And, and then the book came out and basically my, my rule is that I, I don't sit still well for too long. So every time I, I find myself, you know, doing the same thing for a little while, I, I just decide to add something new. Uh, so I don't know what the next thing is. Maybe another book. Who knows? Yeah, maybe another book. Maybe. Uh, well, somebody's going to have to, yeah, write the second part of the story, like you said, because the, uh, the that story's still going on of both the convoy. But what else, like what else, uh, what haven't we talked about that would, would would fit well in this in the conversation well you know i i mentioned earlier that you know independent media has really had the ability to shine throughout covid but i i have to stress that it's not just about you know what people at true north or rebel or the post millennial or the western standard are, are doing and i think it's about what people in this country who listen to and consume media are doing. Like I, I had people that would come up to me and send me emails after uh, the convoy or during the convoy and say, you know, I've been a lifelong subscriber to the Globe and Mail or the Toronto Star and, you know, I'm canceling and I'm donating to, to you guys every month. And, and, and that's very humbling because, you know, people are struggling right now and, and people are hurting financially and otherwise. And, you know, discretionary income in general is not something that I, I think people have a lot of. So when they say I value what you're doing, and I, I think it's more important to play a role in that than to use this money to spend at the grocery store or the gas station, like that's that's quite a humbling experience. And I mean, I don't handle the financials for True North. I think that would be the, the number one way to drive the organization into the ground is if you let me, you know, muck around in the accounting department. But I, I do think that when I, I see people that are supporting what independent media uh, do, does, whether it's through donating or even just through reading and, and sharing, it, it's very humbling. And I, I think there is a turning point right now that's taking place where, you know, you look at the numbers. People are listening to uh, traditional media sources and uh, watching traditional media sources in smaller and smaller numbers. And independent media audiences are growing and growing and growing. And, you know, I, I don't know what the future is going to bring because, you know, we're talking here about delivery styles. Like there, there's nothing preventing, you know, CBC from pivoting to a, a YouTube model, uh, an online predominant model. They, they do it in, in some ways. There's nothing preventing other networks from doing that. I, I think the issue is what they're selling, not just where they're selling it. Mm hmm. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, part of uh, I talked about my cynicism a bit earlier, and that's part of uh, I got cynical enough that it inspired me to start a podcast. Um, but yeah, even then, I, I think there is something, because I've been overwhelmed with the, it's modest support, but even then, it's, I've been very humbled by the fact that that many people are listening to, you know, 
uh, you know, liber- more libertarian issues. Having said that, I think everybody's a little more libertarian since since the lockdowns happened. <laughs> yeah, COVID, COVID has a tendency to make a lot of libertarians, I've learned. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm like, I, I was here before. I'm just like welcoming <laughs> others to the party. Yeah. Actually, I think I remember you telling me one time that uh, your conservative friends accuse you of being too libertarian and your libertarian friends accuse you of being too conservative or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I've, I've jokingly called myself a conservatarian on there because, but, but even then, I mean, the problem, like the problem that I used to have with, and I, I identify as a libertarian, but the problem that I used to have with a lot of libertarians is, is that I, I found they, they were too, they, they blended too much what they thought you know, should be a legal behavior with what they thought was a moral behavior. And I, and I found a lot of libertarians where I don't want to say immoral, but they were amoral, where they were very resistant to this idea of, you know, saying that there are cultural norms and that there are things that are, are you know, not necessarily good to do in society. And whereas my view as, as a Christian libertarian is that I, I think there's a huge difference between what I should do as a human and what I should be allowed to do as a human. And and I've always found that that is the the big challenge for not all, but for a lot of libertarians is that, is that they tend to conflate uh, a belief that government should not regulate you with your your behavior with this idea that you know we should not on our own in, inhibit certain behavior. And I, and I'm not going to get into like you know listing things that are right or wrong because I believe you know people should be able to make those decisions for themselves. But that was always the challenge. So I'm like not a pot smoker, and if you want to smoke pot, that's fine. But you know most libertarians. I met, I think like probably the first 500 libertarians I met were all like really big pot smokers. And I'm like, I'm like, surely people that don't like pot could believe in the legalization of it. And, and I think more and more of of that's coming around now. I I mean, same as when you're talking about, you know, religious freedom, Uh, you know, there are a lot of atheist libertarians that were throughout the lockdown saying, yeah, absolutely. That church should have a right to open. So I do think we're starting to reevaluate this, but I think that's always been the traditional uh, difficulty with some of those labels. Oh, for sure. I, I agree completely. Um, and yeah, throughout COVID, that was definitely something I noticed these, uh, how uh, some of the, you know, crazier libertarian types uh, became some of the closest allies of these very strict social conservatives. Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. It's a, it makes strange, strange bedfellows, as they say, but uh, uh, when liberty's under threat, that's, I guess that's what happens. I guess the one other thing I'm curious about is how has the book sold? Like, are you at liberty to tell us how many copies you've sold and the it's made um, bestseller? I, I, lists. I would absolutely tell you if I knew. Okay. So th- this is legitimately I I've never talked about this. You get a little exclusive here. Uh, it, it's one of the most frustrating experiences about being an author is that there there's a lot of there's a lack of transparency, and I don't mean it in a way that you know, anyone has done something wrong, but you're, you're removed from the sales process. So I, I didn't self publish. I have a, a traditional publisher who gives me a, you know, a small percentage off every copy of the book sold. They're the ones that sell them though. They sell them to Amazon and they sell them to the distributors and they sell some directly and, uh, they handle all that. And I, I think it's like twice a year, they give me a list of, of how many I've sold and, and I look at, and then they give me a check and I haven't gotten one of those checks yet. So I don't even know how many we've sold. Like I've, I've had some conversations with my publisher early on, just, you know, when it was, we were printing more, it's, uh, you know, cause originally we had a hard time actually getting caught up. 
and and printing enough books because they were they were moving so quickly. So it was oh you know Amazon's ordered another thousand or another two thousand here. So I, I know we cleared the ten thousand mark, but I like I have no idea where we ended up after that. Um, I think we've printed. As last I heard, and this is like old information, we had printed probably close to 20,000. But but like I said, I, I don't know how many have sold. And, you know, for all I know, they're like sitting in a storage locker somewhere and they're all going to be returned. And I'm going to get a phone call that's like, Andrew, we, we need you to offload, you know, 10,000 of these books no one wants. But um, it, but what I do know is that it was a number one bestseller for, I think, seven weeks and is still on the bestsellers list. It's not at number one anymore. Which uh, in Canada uh, is quite an accomplishment. And, and for me, you know, as someone who like is just this little kid from London, Ontario that, you know, wanted to, you know, be in radio one day and then started a podcast and then eventually wrote this book. I'm, I'm, I'm quite proud of it. And, uh, you know, it, it was one of these things I wrote very quickly. You know, I, this this all happened in, in January, February. I wrote the book over the month of April and a little bit into May. And, and then here it is. And I'm, I'm happy with it. I, so if I had the number, I'd give it to you. I, I know it's in the thousands and I know it's, you know, over 10,000, but I, I don't know where. Okay. Well, like I said, I recommend that the listeners pick up a copy. I bought my copy on Amazon, actually multiple copies on Amazon. Um, Good. More people need to be like you and just like stop <laughs> buying the one copy and like just keep coming back and buying more. I love it. Yeah. Well, like I said, my, uh, my neighbor, I told her that I had it and, uh, and her and her husband are truckers. They were at some of the events here in Alberta, and they uh, and she was interested in the book, so I, I I gave her the first copy I got, and then I ordered a couple more. So, but uh, anyway, Andrew, well, we'll put you on a commission next time. I appreciate yeah, it. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, man. Well, thanks a lot for coming on. This was a real treat, and I hope we can do it again sometime. It was a lot of fun, Darcy. Thanks very much. That was Andrew Lawton, host of The Andrew Lawton Show. You can check that out at tnc.news. You can buy his book, The Freedom Convoy, on Amazon. And if you like the Darcy Drill podcast, subscribe on Substack. Substack.